Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. Today, NBA Finals. We are through four games. Definitely we'll talk about some other things that have happened in the playoffs and take some questions, have some general thoughts on this series. But this episode will be a lot about Game 4 last night between the Warriors and Raptors. A lot of thoughts on some of the schemes, the coaching adjustments. So we will certainly be headed there in this episode. So before diving into the details in game form, what I've been seeing in the last few games in this series. Let's start with this question from Twitter. It's from Karen. I'm going to butcher some names today. Let's just get ready for that. I apologize in advance, and I really wish we could actually live splice in the real pronunciation of people's names just to see how badly I'm butchering them. Uh, but interesting question I wanted to start with from Karun Sager. That's what I that's what I say in my head. I it, this name, I mean, I could be so wrong on this name. It could be Karun. I, I don't know. So, here's the question. Why did you consider you being Ben? Why did you consider the Warriors favorites? Weren't the Bucks much better during the regular season? What made you pick the Warriors in 7? Someone asked me before the series where I was leaning and I said Warriors in 7. I rarely pick 7 game series. That's like my my coin flip response. And I wanted to start there because last episode after game one last week, I was able to sit down and chat with the wonderful Steve Jones Jr. about that game. And the thing that snuck up on me as there were a couple, you know, the Warriors had a bunch of time off. And then that Milwaukee-Toronto series was very intense. And I was analyzing and working on content around that series and as I started to look toward the finals and game one snuck up on me I started to think boy Toronto matches up better and better and better than I would have thought a couple weeks ago and the more I looked at it the more I liked Toronto I really liked some of the ESPN guys picking Toronto of course before game one all three of the Jalen Rose, Chauncey Billups, and Paul Pierce picked Toronto to win the series. And the thing that I kept coming back to was that the series had a very wide range of outcomes for me, meaning Toronto in five or Golden State in five wouldn't necessarily surprise me. And the main reason for this to me was how flexible historically both rosters are. That's one of the things Steve Jones and I talked about in the last episode how smart the players are, how versatile they are. And so what that meant to me is you have a lot of different looks that you could possibly see from both coaches and from both teams. And 
depending on whether those are actually executed or enacted, or basically how each team plays its cards, you could have a wide range of outcomes, not just not to mention just simple variants that occurs sometimes. Sometimes you have two very close teams and they they play each other and it ends up only being a five game series just because the couple close games break one way. So that was what I was thinking coming in. Another big thing is I just did not expect Kevin Durant to miss the whole series. And it looks like he's going to miss the entire series. I suppose reading the tea leaves right now, it looks like it's possible he could come back if they got it to a game six, just because there are now two days in between every game instead of one game earlier in the series. So game six would be another five days away. But that probably would have swayed me completely to Toronto. It was also, you know, looking at like a coin flip for me, it was also a situation where, and this is why I wanted to start with this question, because I like to start with the things I learn. I like to start with the things I get wrong. And it's like, oh, I missed something. Why did I miss it? I was leaning toward guys who I thought could excel in tighter spots historically. And if you're immediately thinking Clay Thompson and Steph Curry three-pointers, that's not what I mean. I actually was thinking Golden State's defense has been so good over the years in key situations. Even Game 7 against the Cavs in the only series they've lost in this run. You know, they've had two wins with Durant. They had two runs without Durant. Uh, obviously a far deeper and more complete team back in those years. Younger Andrew Bogut, much younger Andre Iguodala. Um, depth, obviously, Barbosa and guys like that, Harrison Barnes. So they could go seven or eight deep with quality and with the Sean Livingston was much younger then. And that's a whole separate topic. It's a whole separate discussion that I may chime in on in some depth because it's not easy to maintain dynastic teams like this. I saw someone on Twitter say last night, you know, the league is set up for dynasties. And I actually think of it as kind of the opposite. The league might be set up where you can keep certain cores together and core structures like that, but it's actually very difficult to sustain dynasties. And part of that is is because of where you pick, where your money goes, how players age, decisions you have to make, things like that. So it's a whole separate conversation. But and I and I in classic fashion, I've gone on a total tangent. But bringing it back to my point. Game 7 against the Cavs in 2016, the only series they lost, they just couldn't get a bucket in the last few minutes of the game, but the defense was fantastic. The defense has always showed up for them. And their postseason defense, as I discussed in my Draymond Green video recently, has been historically great. In the three-point era, it's been fantastic. And I think, from what I was able to dive into, a lot of that has to do with the success of small ball and with Durant being out. They can't play the small ball lineup like that. Now, while we're here on this topic, another question from Twitter from Jeremy. Golden State has been been unable to go with Draymond at the five in this series because of wing depth. They actually tried it for a few possessions last night with, I think it was Livingston and Cook coming in. 
to round out the roster. Uh, he continues, but do you think a small ball lineup would actually match up well versus Toronto? I'm skeptical. Well, it's not that I think they would match up really well per se. It's that you have another large capable defender on the court in Kevin Durant. And so if you have to pick between either Sean Livingston at the rim, Clay Thompson or Steph Curry at the rim, you want Durant. You want Durant in that, if you think of it, that low spot on the court, that guy who's responsible for the last line of defense. It's You see it a lot in pick and roll, which we'll get to. And you just want a long, switchy, rangy, versatile defender. He's one of their better defensive players in general once you get past you know Draymond and guys like that. And so it's not that I think he would be some, you know, massive defensive presence in the series, or that I think if they went to the small lineup, that the lineup would absolutely run the Raptors off the court and make them change their personnel. I don't think that would really be the case at all. Instead, I just think A, it would be an extra body, and depth is clearly an issue, and B, it would be a capable defensive body that has, you know, that has downstream effects basically. And it would allow them to run that lineup at times, run that lineup successfully, and I think with a lot of great defensive success. So speaking of defensive success, and I meant to start with this, and I see now I've been talking for, gosh, almost 10 minutes. Defensive success. Wait, wait, wait. Before we get to defensive success, let me just clarify the thing I think I missed the most on is how how defensively Golden State couldn't go small. They just don't have the personnel necessarily to do it. And then how that lack of defensive versatility has been exploited by Toronto, who is a good shooting, good passing team. Okay. In the first half, the Raptors scored 42 points. They had 49 possessions in the first half. That's an 86 offensive rating. Now, some of those were good looks that the Raptors were making in Game 3. Danny Green had a bunch of looks specifically. But even if a couple of them went in, you, you're not going to have some crazy offensive rating. It was a solid defensive half from Golden State. The second half, Toronto scored 67 points. In 47 possessions. That's a 143 offensive rating. That is about as well as you can score the basketball in a half. I mean, every once in a while, let's throw the regular season out. I guess you can have earlier round playoff games where I've seen, you know, 150s or 160 or something like that. But if you're in an NBA Finals game, A, and B, You're playing a capable defense. You don't have to be the 90s Knicks, just a relatively high-level defense. And you drop a 143 offensive rating and a half. It's going to look like the rest of that, you know, the last 18 minutes of that game felt, which is like a tidal wave has just crashed through your home and you're left with nothing. Because Toronto, the reason they had that offensive rating wasn't just, oh, amazing shot making. It was, they were basically getting 
high-quality looks over and over and over again. So the question, you know, let's start with the pick and roll. The question is, why can't Golden State stop the Raptors' pick and roll? Toronto really skewered them running high pick and roll, meaning the screen was outside the three-point line, 30, 35 feet away, things like that. It's a big coming up to set a screen and some space on the court. And this was the same thing the Clippers did to them, if you remember, in the first round. So well, I'll, I'll, I'll break that down specifically in a second. But first, Toronto did not run high pick and roll extensively in the first half. They did some other stuff. There was a lot of helter-skelter stuff in the first half. Transitions, missed shots, cross matches. And they ran a little bit. They ran more Kawhi isolation in the first half. And I'm not saying that the Raptors' first half offensive strategy was problematic. It just wasn't the same thing they started to chip away at in the second half. And in the second half, they really started this cascade in the third quarter. Bogut was on the court. They started putting him in high pick and roll action. And when they put him in high pick and roll action, he couldn't move laterally. He has a hard time guarding 25 feet away or 30 feet away. And so what that did is open up the the pop, the pick and pop for Marc Gasol and Serge Ibaka. And Gasol in one of those spots hit a hit a big three. I think, if I'm remembering it correctly, that led to Bogut basically being taken out of the game. And then he basically came back in for two or three minutes to spot Looney at the very end of the game because Looney was just logging big minutes. Uh, even to get Looney off the court, that's the stretch where Kerr tried that small lineup very briefly. And DeMarcus Cousins just could not play in this game. It was a disaster for DeMarcus Cousins. You have to remember he's coming off the Achilles injury and coming off the quad injury. So he didn't look like he had the same lift or explosiveness or movement coming off the Achilles. That's going to require an adjustment period in general in the long run assuming he can kind of ramp his health back up to a decent level. But he's a big guy. And then he injures the quad, and he's out for a while. And he came back, and he played fantastic. You know, for rel- relative to where he is and what you could expect, he was just valiant in Game 2. And it's been a struggle since then for Boogie, and last night was a disaster. Four turnovers, I believe, in 14 minutes, just making poor decisions on offense, but I think the bigger things were stuff that you don't see or don't talk about that happen off the ball. One of them was his inability to hunt screens for the Splash Brothers. This is an important part of Golden State's offense, and that is off the basketball, one of the Splash Brothers has some separation. They're like a wide receiver running a route, curling hard up to the three-point line, or at the three-point line, and Boogie's man is in a drop or deep or not yet in the play, you got to hit him. You you have to hit Curry or Clay's guy with a screen. Andrew Bogut is fantastic at this. Draymond Green is obviously fantastic at this. The bigs in Golden State who have played big minutes over the years have learned to do this. Even Looney, Zaza Pachulia could do it. It's just part of their offense. And Cousins intuitively struggles with it. There's actually... 
one play in the first half last night where he not only missed the screen, but he kind of like crashed into Curry or Clay. I can't remember who was cutting, but he kind of like crashed into him and blew up the whole action by himself. So that's one area. The other area, obviously, is defensively, the lateral movement and some pick and roll stuff. He he would struggle there and has struggled there in addition to a guy like Andrew Bogut. So they're left with no depth on the front line. Then, and this goes back to the Clippers series, because the Clippers did this very well, especially with Lou Williams and Trez Harrell, although even, I think, even like Jermichael Green got in on the action and things like that. But basically... They run a high pick and roll. They spread the court. You put one shooter in one corner. You put another shooter in an opposite corner. So if in your mind's eye right now, if you visualize two guys in the opposite corners, they're both shooters. So what that asks is Golden State's lower defenders to get out of the lane. It completely opens up the lane. And then the two shooters have to kind of respect the shot. So they're hugged out to the three-point line. And... This is extremely difficult to defend. Now, it's difficult to defend under normal circumstances. But one thing that ended up happening last night was either Steph Curry or both Clay and Steph Curry were near those near those low spots. And so even if they help, you have a small guard rotating at the last second into the paint to try to dissuade a big man who's diving to the basket. There was no disruption of that action on the ball. And then if you have no help, that's when you get all these free runs. So you saw a number of them in the game. Ibaka is the one that's probably indelible in people's minds. High pick, roll, the paint is wide open. And by the way, this is a huge reason why I value big man defense and rim protection. You don't have to be a great shot blocker, but the difference between Pascal Siakam showing his body in the paint or LeBron James even at his age stepping up and showing his body in the paint and guys like Clay Thompson and Steph Curry is night and day. Now another thing the Warriors could do against this action was switch it meaning when the screen comes up and you have that pick and roll that little two-man dance the big let's say Lowry has the basketball Looney can just stay with Lowry, or Draymond Green can stay with Lowry. And they did this a few times. But this also creates its own problems, because you either have a, either have a mismatch, or in one situation, the switch was late. Draymond called for a late switch, and Quinn Cook was on the basketball, and Ibaka still got a free run. So they have big problems there. Friend of the show, Teddy B., at Say It Ain't Ted, he asks, what should the Warriors do on the Lowry-Abaca pick and rolls? Pray? I mean, I I don't know. Hope's not a strategy. But on a serious level, you have to pick your poison at some point in basketball when you're playing good offense and good offensive players. And Kyle Lowry last night and for most of this series. Really last night I felt it, but his passing in game one was fantastic even though he didn't shoot well and his overall game defensively passing and even some of the scoring in game three was really good. 
And in game four, that continued, and his passing and his decision-making was just spot on all night. And so in this particular action, that means he's calling up the screener. If you if you have an ability to watch the game again, you'll see Lowry in the fourth quarter constantly point to the screener he wants to come up. It's almost always from the dunker spot on the side he wants to attack, the dunker spot being that area near the low block, next to the hoop, almost behind the backboard where big men can hang out. It's an advantageous position to receive passes and so on and so forth. So Lowry points down there. He says, you come up here. That's going to bring Kavon Looney into the pick and roll or the big man. Sometimes it was Draymond Green. He did this over and over and over again. And he gets that high pick and roll action. That, That maintains the spacing that Lowry wants, so he understands exactly what he's going to pick off and break down. And that's why it was just basically kill shots all around after that. I mean, it was setting the table for Sergi Baca layups a couple times over and over, little elbow jumpers, and then, and who's there to help? That's the point. Who's there to help? Curry, Clay Thompson. When you involve Draymond Green in the pick and roll, which of course, Toronto has done a number of times throughout this series. Really smart tactical play here by Nick Nurse and company, who have impressed me throughout the last couple rounds. But when you bring Draymond into the pick and roll, then he can't be a roamer and help off the ball. This is difficult to defend at full strength. Golden State's skilled enough, they're smart enough, to defend it pretty well earlier in the game. What I saw last night was they looked gassed, absolutely gassed down the stretch, especially on defense. Green's pop wasn't there. There's a specific play where Ibaka got one of his layups. And look, it's not like Serge Ibaka had 18 layups. He only had a couple. But you add that in with Siakam, you add some pick-and-pop stuff with Gasol, You add a couple elbow jumpers from Ibaka, it starts to feel like a lot, and it adds up. And on one of those plays, Draymond basically was stuck to Marc Gasol. I'm, I'm not sure he needed to be, even if it was the first quarter and fresh, but he was a half a step slow mentally. He's usually a half step early, reading and anticipating and getting in your mind. And in this case, he was a half a step slow on these same kind of plays over and over. Steph Curry watching the basketball, half a step or a step slow. Clay Thompson watching the basketball if he was in a similar position. And that fatigue, that mental and physical fatigue adds up and makes it incredibly difficult to defend. One more thing I wanted to point out with Kyle Lowry He made two great return passes when he was off the ball in these spots. So that's pick and roll, high pick and roll being set up by, say, either Kawhi or Fred Van Vliet. Fred Van Vliet. Vliet. People are always asking, why Why don't people say his name correctly? It's really hard to say. The F and the V are the exact same part, the exact same sound, essentially, in the human mouth. One just has a vibration. And so it ends up, Fred Van Vliet. I will try my best. Van Vliet. So it's really, try to try it. It's hard. It's hard to really say it when you're on a roll. Um, I'm going to call him Fred for now. Basically, Lowry was off the ball 
Fred kicks it to him because he's in a spot-up situation, and Lowry just makes perfect return passes to the screener. So in one case, it was Mark Gasol who had set the screen, moved into a pop position, he got a wide-open three and missed, and another case was, uh, what else, an Ibaka dunk. Okay, some more Nick Nurse love. Another thing I want to get to, when Golden State had possession. In the first half, as we've seen throughout the series, throughout the playoff run, throughout the last five years, when off-ball screens are set for the Splash Brothers and they have this curling action where they they loop up around the screen for catch-and-shoot opportunities, we have seen so many times, time and time again, it's in a bunch of my videos recently, the, a lot of these specific plays, where two guys on defense jump to either Clay or usually Steph Curry. And that means the guy guarding Steph Curry, trailing him, often Fred, Fred Van Vliet. Uh, maybe if you try it with an accent, it'll be easier. Van Vliet, uh, often Fred, or if it's the you know if it's a big setting the screen and Mark Gasol is guarding the screener like Looney, Gasol also shows or jumps out onto Curry so he doesn't get an open look. This is his gravity. This is how good these guys are at shooting that they send coaches into frenzied fits. And in the first half last night, there were a number of plays again where Golden State either got a direct layup, layup off that slip action or that slip action led to free throws or something very good because it's a full breakdown. Defensively, it's a full breakdown. If that pass gets through to the slipper, Draymond is famous for making it. Uh, Andre Iguodala makes it really well. And guys like Bogut used to make it. Just when it gets through, you have problems. In the second half, right out of the gate, Marc Gasol stayed deeper. He did not jump up to crush that action. Now, you don't want to just stay 15 feet away and let the screener have a free shot on the guy chasing Curry. So this is where I thought Toronto was brilliant executing a defensive game plan in the second half. And keep in mind, by the way, that Golden State's offense in this game wasn't that good in the first place. It wasn't great in the first half in terms of execution or numbers, and it wasn't great in the second half. I think they were around 96. I think their offensive rating finished around 96. That's 96 points per 100, and it was similar in both halves. And they probably had better look. You know, they had periods of the game where they got good looks. But this was a nice adjustment, I thought, in that especially with the Warriors players tired and Steph Curry's legs looking tired. A lot of his shots were short. I thought it was a really savvy adjustment. And all these smart defenders that Toronto has, it really helps because you can say, hey, instead of sending more pressure with Mark, what I want, and this is what they started to do. If you're guarding a non-shooter, Pascal, you sag off the non-shooter so you can be there to cover the lob man or the big at the rim. We can have extra defenders flooding into the paint on the backside. And if you're on the passer, and this is I'm interested to see if this adjustment carries on going forward. This is kind of the counter. You can get into a counter to the counter. You get into fun basketball chess like this. If the passer is close to delivering the pass to 
you know, Curry or Clay, and that passer is not a shooter, you can help off the passer to dissuade Steph from going into catch and shoot. And that happened once or twice in the third quarter right out of the gate. So that action that has given Golden State so much juice started to dry up a little bit because of that counter. Another thing that the Warriors did in the first half was posted up Clay Thompson a lot, and this led to double teams. But I don't actually think it was just Clay Thompson after reviewing the tape. It was cross matches in general. Clay Thompson happens to be one that they don't mind hunting when he has, you know, a smaller guy like Kyle Lowry on him because Kyle Lowry's on him because Clay Thompson's guarding Kyle Lowry on the other end. So they get cross matched against against each other going down to that, you know, when when Golden State's on offense. So, okay. So they throw it in to Clay a lot in the first half. It creates either scores or double teams that lead to some decent stuff. And what happened to that in the second half? Well, when Boogie started the second half and he played his last couple minutes of the game, they went to this right away. He had Fred on him in a cross match. It was an and one. And, well, he missed the free throw. And that's another thing, by the way. All of this discussion of the game and offensive ratings, the Warriors missed a bunch of free throws in this game. They were 14 of 21 from the line. Toronto was an incredible 23 of 24 from the line. And the Warriors missed five of those by my count in the second half. So, you know, their offensive rating finished sub 100, but there were actually stretches in the second half where they put pressure on the defense, they got decent looks, or they got to the free throw line a lot after collapsing the Raptors' D. They just couldn't make those free throws. So you make a couple more of those free throws, you don't flub up a play here or there, you make one more three. All of a sudden, it's not to say that they win the game, but A, it's a very close game, and two, when you look at something like this, you say, oh, okay, maybe in the second half they finish with an offensive rating. I mean, you give them like six or seven more points in these situations, and all of a sudden their offensive rating goes up to... 110 or 111 or something like that. But to get back to the original point, they can't cross-match hunt. They can't go after these mismatches if there aren't mismatches available. And as the Raptors started to score more and more and more, that allows Toronto to get back and set its defense. You don't have delayed transition or transition opportunities. And so all of a sudden, all of these mismatches and cross-matches go away. They were going to the clay post-up very early, before the defense was set often, meaning as everyone's coming up court, clay would run down ahead of people, set up on the block, and you'd even see these entry passes from 30 or 40 feet out in the back court. In my notes, the last time I saw them really go to this was about six minutes left in the third. It did lead to a double team, and it would have been a lob for a layup, but Kawhi Leonard did a really nice job just stuffing the pass and stealing it. He had he had another key play like that on defense, but overall I thought it was another problematic game for Kawhi defensively. He had a couple blow-bys. Um, I, I thought he messed up one of the rotations, jumping out on the Splash Brothers in the second half. It was the only instance in the second half of a Toronto player doing that. And... He just wasn't, Clay dusted him 
Kawhi took a jumper against Clay down on the baseline, and Thompson just outran him down the court, and Kawhi never got back, and it was an easy easy look for Golden State. Now, another reason they went away from the post-up action is because they wanted to switch to emphasize Curry pick-and-roll action, the bread and butter, the real dangerous duo, the dynamic two-step of the NBA, Green and Curry, high pick-and-roll. They started to run that a lot. And I, as I said, I think they got better shots and better actions out of it in general. When you go to the Curry-Green pick-and-roll or Curry-anybody pick-and-roll, you don't want Clay posting up on the block. It messes up the spacing. So Clay clears out to the weak side in those situations. That action goes away. You kind of replace it with this Curry on-ball action. Now, a lot of people ask specifically another name that I'm priming to mess up, Mikolas. We'll just try that. Uh, What's the reason for the Warriors not running green Curry pick and roll that much? Well, they never like to spam it. They never run it 50 times. I mean, very rare that I see that. They usually hold it in their back pocket. Steve Jones and I talked about this on the last episode. I think Dave Dufour mentioned this when we were talking about the Warriors Rockets a couple weeks ago. And they did start running it heavily, mm, I'd say near the end of the third quarter. Near the end of the third quarter, you saw that or some variation with Curry pushing the ball up court. But if it's transition and something's open, you're not going to see that set screen action. And Sometimes you even see like variations. So Curry brings it up. Draymond's running next to him with an opportunity to set a screen. And Curry just bypasses the screen and drives hard to catch the Raptors off guard because they may be expecting the screen or they're not totally set. So they, they did start running it heavily later in the game. And I think it'll be interesting to see going forward in game five if we see that more. Uh, again, Golden State was just so fatigued to me that I'm not sure. I think the extra day rest will be very helpful for them. And I don't know if they open that option up more strategically. I'm really not sure. Toronto defended it very well. Toronto's doing a nice job of, as the series goes on, and they have really smart defenders like Marcus Gasol, like Siakam that are long. They're doing a good job of saying, okay, if, if there's some crack or pressure or penetration up high, let's say the Curry-Green pick and roll, and Curry slips the ball to Green, and Green gets his head of steam, we're going to understand, A, take away the basketball, somebody pinch down and help so you don't get a layup, and B, guard the lob on the backside. And there was one clear play in the fourth quarter where they did that. Curry made, uh, excuse me, Draymond made the right read, if you will, which is the corner pass now. It's now another option where the guy in the corner is left wide open because you have to pick your poison. You have to take something away. And in this case, you sag in off the perimeter. It left Quinn Cook. And Cook upfaked on a three and missed a long two. So good things can happen from that. But, you know, when you're down to Quinn Cook, you need Quinn Cook to be Jaron Jackson Sr. You need Quinn Cook in those spots to can corner threes over and over again. So it'll be interesting to see if they go to that Based on how Toronto is playing, you really, really want 
a, a strong shooter on that side that Draymond can punish. I don't know. I don't know how much we'll see it though. I don't know. At this point, I'm just you know pontificating off the top of my head. Let's go to a few more questions from Twitter. Another one from Jeremy. I wanted to touch on really quickly is thoughts on Fred's success defending Steph. Is it a small sample or is there something else going on there? Um, I don't know how successful I would call it. I think he does a good job disrupting his routes and sometimes illegally. He So Cleveland had this idea from 2016 where they said we want to touch up Steph on every possession. We want to bump him, put a body on him, push him, make him feel us. And if you watch Fred off the ball against Curry, he is always banging into him, holding his arm or something subtle like that, just kind of constantly trying to push him around or disrupt his movement. And additionally, Curry is so good at stopping and starting and changing directions that he does bait players into drawing fouls. The same way when you have the ball, and you get a guy with an up fake or you start and stop and he runs into you, that's a foul. It's also a foul when you don't have the ball. And so I see a lot of that where Van Vliet is so, I hope I got it that time, Van Vliet is so close to him that when Curry stops or changes directions or something, he just really uses that thick, you know, those legs and his chest, he just bangs into him. I think that's what he's doing very well. But otherwise, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't chalk it up to something uh, game-changing. Another quick one from Marxist Film. Really fascinated by that handle, by the way, Marxist Film. I don't know how to phrase this, uh, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts on just how bad the Warriors roster is outside of the Clay, Steph, Draymond core compared to the usual finals quality team. Well, if they're an Eastern Conference team from the 2000s, maybe they're pretty good. <laughs> um in terms of like championship quality teams that typically get to the final four or the finals and have a shot at the title, I would say they're not that good, but more importantly is the fit. And in this case, as I've mentioned earlier and in other episodes, you have two real things. You have the lack of shooting. So Clay and Curry are the real shooting threats. And then once you get past that, you have these lineups with two or three or even four non-shooters as we saw the box and one unveiled for three more possessions last night I had a tweet earlier saying I didn't think we'd see it for more than 10 possessions after game two and we're up to three so the lack of shooting is definitely an issue the other thing depth for quality pieces you can see it you know where do I get extra minutes in key rotational spots with guys that can play defense be aware and actually you don't have to be great but, you know, McKinney, he, sometimes he gives you some good minutes. Sometimes uh, he kind of gets stuck on actions or screens or the rotation. Cook is the same way. He can make some open shots. But, uh, he, you know, the ball pressure or sometimes the, the things he does defensively kind of, you know, make him problematic there. The bigs, maybe the bigs can give you some minutes for rebounding and defense, but they can get stretched in pick and roll. So I would say in general, without going through and sizing up the the fifth through eighth man of a lot of championship level teams it's extremely weak but this I'm you know there's nothing new here we all know this is a very top heavy basketball team that's that's the biggest thing 
I think I could drive home about the difference between 2019, 2017, and 2015. As I said earlier, 2015, 2016, those teams had great depth and really good role players. Okay, I want to leave with two more questions about Kawhi Leonard because it's probably the narrative topic that I feel most strongly about right now that I keep finding myself coming back to in the moment. And it's hard to evaluate stuff in the moment, especially with a guy who's only had a couple, you know, this is maybe what, his first or second full postseason run in his prime. He's only been in his prime a couple years. And I am sure with a year or two of perspective and a year or two of more data and knock on wood, a year or two with another team. By the way, nothing against the Raptors. This has been a great run to watch. They're a really fun team to watch. And, you know, I'm sure I'm I'm happy to see all the excitement around Canada. But you guys got to know, I love when players change teams. It's just about my favorite thing. So I'm sure in a year or two I'll look back and have slightly better perspective on this. But as it's happening... There, you know, you break down the game, you watch how players play, you look at the stats accumulate, and again, I keep coming back to Kawhi's playing really well, he's shooting really well, he's scoring well, but the playmaking and the defense, I feel like people are giving him these massive passes, and that no pun intended, uh, they're they're overlooking it, and then you get this massive winning bias boost. So let me get to the two questions which I think are representative of how a lot of other people are feeling. Here's the first one. It's from Dan Dan Forsyth. Golden State usually makes teams speed up mentally and then play outside themselves. How is Toronto staying calm? Is it just the presence of Kawhi? So Kawhi is very calm, and then people might say, well, Toronto's winning, so how do I attribute the characteristics of that winning, I'm going to give credit to Kawhi. I'm not even saying Dan's necessarily doing this. I'm just saying these are the things that start to happen. Again, as we talked about for much of this episode, all the other things that were happening on defense and all the rotations and things like that, to me, that's Nick Nurse and coaching staff and extremely smart cerebral cerebral players, namely Kyle Lowry, Mark Gasol, and the third guy I would put in there, and probably their second best and second most important defender in the playoffs in the last couple rounds, Pascal Siakam. If anything, I would call Gasol the first in some of these situations. Although, obviously, he wasn't there for a lot of the regular season. So, you see, the team does well, and there's a desire to give a tremendous amount of credit to Kawhi. It also goes back to star counting which is a a concept I discussed in my book. Too many players for the Raptors are below a threshold for people. So instead of looking at this roster, which some analysts did in March after the trade deadline, and say, whoa, they got Kyle Lowry, who's like a five-time All-Star. They got Marc Gasol, who's a multi-time All-Star and former Defensive Player of the Year, and came out of the gates this year just playing fantastic basketball before he fell off the rails, overall and on defense. And they have Pascal Siakam, who I understand not everybody is as high as I am on, but 
that is a stacked team. And instead, what you end up with is something more like, boy, Kawhi is carrying all these guys because those three players fall below a threshold for a lot of casual fans. And so it just looks like Kawhi plus good supporting cast. Similar question from Oren Levi or Levy. Seen that pronounced both ways. How did the Raps sans Kawhi turn from the wobbly squad we saw against Philadelphia into this championship-level poised killers? See, again, I think this is what happens. We're talking about like 15 basketball games at most. We're talking about two different opponents now. And while I think the Raptors are getting better in terms of their chemistry and experience, I also think what we saw against Philadelphia was Philadelphia is good defensively. They're really long. They played these massive lineups that gave Toronto problems. And the matchup and the style can make the fight. So Kawhi Leonard, excuse me, uh, Joel Embiid, if he's 100% in that series and you know doesn't have his health issues, it's possible they win that series. Does that make the Raptors a garbage, you know, can't make the conference finals team. No, it's the same team. We just saw it. We saw the same basketball. We saw them play. Did they all of a sudden get into the Milwaukee series and because they played four really good games against Milwaukee with a different scheme that I personally don't think Milwaukee countered very well and the games were still super close, did they all of a sudden become giant killers? No, it's the same team. So to me, the lesson is don't look at something that's low or problematic as being indicative of the entire thing, and don't look at something that's very high and stands out as a success as being indicative of the entire thing. The truth is usually in some place in the middle. And it's 3-1 right now in this series. But Golden State has played three healthy games, quote-unquote healthy, and in those games, they've lost two and won one. You, can only ha- you can't have it any other way. In a four-game series, if the series is still going, it's always 2-2 or 3-1. And if it's 3-1, I personally just don't buy into the narrative that every 3-1 series has to be a landslide, what's wrong with the losing team, the world is collapsing, and so on and so forth. But if it's 2-2, which is the only other option, then it's a total coin flip and up in the air. And in this case, one of those games they played shorthanded. And in that game, they did, to me, they did exactly what the 2007 Suns did. The 2007 Suns in game five against the Spurs played a six-man rotation, just left everything out on the court. Steve Nash and company, because that was the game that Amari and all the guys were suspended, coming off the bench after the Robert Ory hip check the game before. And the Suns went for it. They played their hearts out. They lost a close game. Didn't have enough in the end. And I thought they were fairly gassed in game six. That's what Golden State looked like to me last night. So I guess that's a long-winded way of saying two things. One, if you're a Golden State fan, I wouldn't think it's completely over, even if Kevin Durant comes back even if the Raptors are at worst the same quality of team, and maybe 
especially with home court, if they play the series over and over and over again, the Raptors may win more than half. They may win 6 out of 10 or 65 out of 100 or something like that because they are a good matchup. They are, a, they are a really good team, and their defense has been awesome, and their offense has given the Warriors fits. But it's only three games. It doesn't take much to turn it. So the other thing that I want to leave with is back to Kawhi. And just this idea that he gets credited with everything that's going on. And of course, I am ready and bracing for the tidal wave of people who are just going to start de facto calling him the best player in the world because he won a title and because he led the Raptors to a title. As if the Raptors weren't a really good team without him this year and in the past a highly successful team even without DeMar DeRozan, the guy who was traded for. Oh, by the way, they also added Danny Green. So I hope that gives you some idea of why, well, I feel, I think very highly of Kawhi Leonard. I don't just automatically think he's having one of the two or three best shooting guard peaks ever or something like that. And I don't just automatically think, okay, if you gave, and I'll have a top 10 players video coming out very shortly, if you gave, say, Kevin Durant or LeBron James or a number of other top players comparable talent, it doesn't even necessarily have to be the exact same talent as the Raptors, but if you give them comparable talent and the coaching of Nick Nurse and a quality staff that can deploy that talent, and then you also say, hey, by the way, you know, if anything, you're going to make sure you get a lucky break or two do you think you can win a title? Uh, of course. So let's leave it there. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Really appreciate you listening all the way until the end. Thanks as always to Patreons for helping me produce and support this content. It's patreon.com slash thinking basketball. If you want to sign up, there's a $2 tier, a $4 tier. That just helps me make more content, helps me make this podcast so if you enjoy my work, consider supporting over there, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. Hope you guys are enjoying the finals. And until next time, I'll see you in the next episode. Hope you're having a great day.